0: Good morning to all of you who are joining us in this service. And I want to welcome you to what's the second to the final message in this series on We Are the Church. It concludes nine of the let us statements in the book of Hebrews as well. And I'm getting the sense as I've been in this series uh, along with you that these let us statements build on each other. We're in the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, but it assumes some things, I think, and you'll, I believe you'll see it as we open up this passage today. One, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. That's a precursor to where we're going today. Let us consider one another. It's a foundation to where we're going today. Let us draw near to him. Let us hold fast to the faith. Let us run with endurance. Let us not forsake the meaning. This is a foundational one today, let us go to him outside the camp, but it builds on where we've been up until now. It's sort of like the 12 steps in a way. I remember a couple of summers ago leading here at The Journey, our recovery group, in one week at a time going through the 12 steps. So when we got to step 12, which is really about serving others and giving what we've received, a woman said well, that's what always gets me into trouble. You know, I'm always thinking about other people, and i got to work on myself. And I said, well, yeah, of course. What step are you on in the 12 steps? And she said, well, I'm thinking about starting that too. And it comes at 12 for a reason. Making amends is step nine. It builds on itself. And so today is that kind of a passage. And I... I believe we'll be greatly challenged by it, but it assumes all that we've experienced up until this point. I'm going to read these first five verses, um, chapter 13, verses 11 until 16. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we have one that we are looking forward to, a city that is yet to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's always a challenge to open any scripture with 21st century eyes. We see what we see through the place that we are, and yet this is one of the most power-packed, passages, not only for us, but for those who would read it, it it was so rich with context and what it was about first that this was really referring to the Day of Atonement, that annual celebration where the high priest would go in to the temple and he would bring their blood to make atonement first for himself and then for all of the sins of the people. This was the cornerstone of what them allowed the Jewish people to be a people. Second thing, that the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. And there would be an aroma that would remind these readers who their entire lives since they were born and infants, children growing up, had this experience of the Day of Atonement. It's a clear reference for them to Jesus who suffered and died outside the city gate. Golgotha, they knew where that place was. It was outside of the gate of the temple where Jesus would shed his blood in atonement once for all. They also knew that for them to really follow what Jesus is saying here, let us go outside the camp to him, bearing the disgrace that he bore, that was real for them. There would be a disgrace. They would no longer ever celebrate this annual Day of Atonement. And that would disgrace them. Leviticus 24 talks of people being taken outside the camp when they were accursed under the law and rejected. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. The disgrace was real for them. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, the previous chapter says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And these people knew that that was a reality for them. And it is for us. It's not just going outside the camp, but in that place, there is a bearing of his disgrace. We'll talk about it. And then there would also be for these people a clear connection to the idea of the scapegoat, again, in Leviticus. Leviticus is like a precursor to all of the book of Hebrews. We, At least I tend to skip over Leviticus as soon as possible. Some of you did the one-year reading of the Bible, like, when is this going to end? All of these uh, ceremonies and sacrifices which seem so irrelevant today. This was the context that they were hearing this letter. In the scapegoat, instructions are in Leviticus 16, 21, and 22. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and then send the goat away into the desert. And the goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it in the desert. Jesus, God in the flesh, taking on this scapegoat, the lowest. That was like, you know, who would want to be the goat chosen for that? Sent off, declared unworthy, outside as far as you can go. And then they would recall, too, that at this very moment on Golgotha that Jesus died the veil back in the Holy of Holies of the temple, a veil 45 feet high and four inches thick, that was the veil, would be miraculously torn in two. And the earth would shake, and the rocks would split, and darkness would cover the earth. And one of the centurion soldiers who led the crucifixion process Declare, surely this was the Son of God. This changed everything, and they knew it. It's not Jesus plus Judaism. It's not Judaism 2.0. It's not Jesus plus the temple. It's not Jesus plus sacrifices. It's not Jesus plus our best attempts at following the law, it's just and only Jesus. And they needed that. It was just finished, and we need it too. Now back to the core, let us, verse 13. Let us go to him. Let us go to Jesus. Where is he? He's not simply saying, go like I went. He's saying... Go to where I am. And he is outside the camp. He's outside of our camp too. The place we probably most feel comfortable. He's outside the religious establishment of the temple. In fact, he's fulfilled the entire need for it. Hebrews 8.13. Imagine being this people and hearing this in this letter. By calling this covenant new, He's made the first one obsolete. Everything you're about is no more. How you found your identity, how you experienced God, where you experienced God, it's all changed. Pretty destabilizing, isn't it? We're in a destabilizing time, too. But we're not the first ones by any stretch. And the New Testament is full of this kind of language about insiders and outsiders. The whole Jewish community and identity, you have to remember, was marked by them being outsiders. They weren't to intermingle or marry outside of their own. It's what made it so hard, I'm sure, for Peter You know, to hear this dream that he was to eat unclean food with an unclean Gentile person. In fact, it took 20 years after Jesus' resurrection for Peter to get that vision. Three times he had to get it and be told to go and eat unclean animals with an unclean Gentile, Cornelius, in Acts 10. And even after he did that, this is how deep it's in him. Paul had to confront him in Galatians chapter 2. Listen to this. Paul writes this, and now it's public, you know. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was clearly wrong. When he first arrived, he would eat with Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but after... Word. when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's one of the things I I love and it's a little uncomfortable about the Bible. It just puts the dirty laundry right out there, huh? For everybody to read. Wow. Way to out Peter here. And yet Paul didn't come easily either. A righteous Pharisee, also so committed to the law and his identity, needed an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that would knock him off his horse, make him blind for three days before he could ever conceive of Jesus calling him as the primary and first apostle to the gentiles. Later he would write in Christ this is so antithetical to everything up and now till now in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female for we are all one in Christ. That's their world. What about ours? What does it mean for us, defined by this group of people as outsiders, Gentiles, most of us, to go out of our own camps to where Jesus is? It's a good question. And actually not one we have to do a lot of contextualizing and extrapolation to get to a modern Uh, understanding the Bible is really clear about this one. Just earlier in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, the very first verse of that chapter, keep on loving each other and don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some of you have actually entertained angels without knowing it. And remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you were suffering yourself. Strangers, prisoners, those who are mistreated. All throughout Scripture, at least six groups of people that Jesus turns to, goes way out of his way, and it doesn't originate in the New Testament writings, but the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan, the imprisoned, and the foreigner. It's where Jesus is. True religion, we just saw in the previous video James 1 to care for orphans and for widows mother Teresa the one we so often think about in Calcutta slums made the famous statement I've never met a poor person people say what are you crazy you live in the poorest part of the world she said only images of Jesus really well yeah what did we just read some of you By entertaining strangers, have entertained angels without knowing it. Proverbs 19: if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord, and he will repay. Most well-known and uncomfortable: Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. I was hungry, and you fed me, thirsty, you gave me drink. A stranger, you took me in, sick and in prison, and you visited me. Lord, when did we see you like that? Whenever you did it to the least of these, or whenever you didn't do it to the least of these. You did it to me. Let us then go to him who is outside the camp. And it didn't originate just in the New Testament. Isaiah 58, an entire chapter about a true fast. We we had a day of fasting here at Journey Community Church yesterday, church-wide. But in Isaiah 58, God goes on and says, But this is just the beginning point. Here's a true fast to break the yokes of injustice. Jesus quotes his very first act in the temple. When he steps in from the book of Isaiah, he stands and he reads it, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord. And he left there, went into Samaria. Samaria outside the camp, and commissioned the first missionary convert, the woman at the well who an entire city would come to faith. It changed everything. I love how the message puts it. Let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our share in the abuse of Jesus. It's good news and bad news. It's where he is, but it comes with a cost, a risk. To give up some control, to surrender, risk shame, even abuse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Yeah, I love how... Jesus calls us outside the camp. It's not by lecturing or pointing fingers or shaming us. It's an invitation to move into proximity with those that we might otherwise just ignore or even despise. For Peter, that was Cornelius. That was how it became real for him. He was invited to sit down and have a meal One with a person who, by doing that, he would be now rendered unclean, Peter. And it was the deepest level of closeness and solidarity, intimacy, to have a meal together. That's why Jesus was so confronted for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But when he sits with Cornelius and his family, it starts to shift. Not just a command of God. Lo and behold, Acts chapter 1 says Peter saw that Cornelius was a devout and God-fearing man who prayed regularly, gave generously to those in need, and even had visions himself from God. It's like, how could that be? A Gentile. And Paul, his first proximity in his conversion to Christ was with this Ananias believer in Damascus, the one he'd come to execute. And Ananias would come into proximity by the Holy Spirit commanding him, go and lay hands on Paul and pray for the recovery of his sight." his executioner. That's how God works. It says that's how he does it. John 1.14, he took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Proximity. The definition in the dictionary, nearness in space, time, time. Or relationship. Brian Stevenson has made that term so well known. The founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, the movie Just Mercy, in his book by that same title, says all of justice reform hinges on proximity. Apart from that, we become pitiful by pitying others. It's the core of all destructive colonialism. No, he said, come in, not just go, but how we go, to come alongside others as equals. Hannah and I are missionaries, so we believe strongly in the need to bring the gospel of Christ, but people are much more receptive when we come, not looking down on them, but coming under them in many different ways or at least alongside father greg boyle founder of homeboy industries calls it kinship and i remember being with him when he was asked don't how do you not burn out in 30 years of this and he said if, if i thought it was my responsibility to save all these gangsters or to, to to fix their lives i'd have burned out in the first year but he said as long as i can find somebody who's endured more than I have, and walk alongside them, I never burn out. And I can relate to that. I remember one of the very first times really stepping outside the camp as a kid in middle school. And we moved a lot, so I was always conscious of, you know, wanting to get into a group and be protected there. And, and then a new kid came in, in eighth grade, and I don't remember his name except string bean, which is an embarrassment because that wasn't his name. It was a derogatory term. And everybody picked on him. And I just noticed it. I would just become a Christian not long before that. But God started to prick my heart about it. And I was afraid to befriend him because I didn't want to lose whatever I had, which wasn't a lot. But, you know, you don't want to lose your, your circle. And people would slam his books out and slam his locker closed, and he'd walk around. And then one day he was on the bus, and I sat next to him, and I thought, well, now they're going to turn against me. But it wasn't that way, and and I became friends with him. And I even said, I'm sorry for how I've treated you, and all these people treat you. And he said, well, that's all right. That's how everybody does. I found out it was the 13th foster home he'd lived in. I was just getting to know him when he didn't get on the bus the next day and the day after, and I asked the other foster girl in the home what happened, and she said he got transferred to a different home. And he had a big impact on me. And then I remember in seminary doing supervised ministry and signing up to go to Pine Street Inn, the homeless shelter in Boston. They didn't have it chapel service and I thought I'd love to start one. And When I went to the director, she wasn't interested in a chapel service. She said, why don't you just come in and hang out with the people here during your time? And I was a little offended by it, you know, like, wow, I wasn't signing up to just anybody can do that. But Hannah and I did that for that year and the impact that that had on me, the stories of these men and women who were homeless and I, you see when you walk along the Boston Commons and so forth, and their stories were very different. People just like me. Most of them done something they couldn't forgive themselves for, sometimes the Vietnam War and other things. And then I remember being asked to preach in a prison for the first time. And I prepared an evangelistic message and wasn't prepared for Charlie Banks, who met me when I walked into the chapel, who was the deacon inmate, took me right up on the front and I was in a service of I'd never been in like before. The, the praise and the, the loud call to God was so powerful, and I realized I wasn't bringing Jesus in here. He was here well and alive. And then teaching boys to drive when we had kids come out of jail, live with us in the early 90s, and driving through our neighborhood with two African-American boys who lived in our home and being pulled over by three police officer cars with guns drawn to our heads and wondering what did these guys do and later when they knew I was with them I said what was going on and they said did you not notice we're black kids and that's what happens to us and I was like no I don't I I, they, I, I didn't believe it until a couple of weeks later somebody from our Home. And a white kid brought a black kid down to an employer in our city, and there was a sign-up, help wanted. And he went up there, the African-American kid, and, and they said, no, we're not hiring. And the kid who brought him walked up just to see what's going on. He'd already had a job, but they wanted to interview him on the spot. And I'd seen many movies and heard all about this kind of thing, but when you're in proximity, it's different. And it's the only time it's different and having a son who's gay. And I've known that, well, four times more likely now to commit suicide, even more for kids raised in Christian homes. It was a statistic until it was my son. And proximity changes us. And I don't know about you, maybe you went to Haiti and you thought you were going to bring God there and you realized that they were bringing them to you. Maybe you had your world turned upside down, volunteering at warm with refugees and immigrants, and it shifted from being a political issue to a friendship. Or maybe someone in your family who's struggled with addiction or depression or mental illness, and now it's far more than just an issue. It's somebody you love. this call to proximity. How do we break free? For me, it's every day asking God, how would you move me outside? And it will, by nature, have to feel uncomfortable. If not, it's not what Jesus is talking about. Go to where I am, outside the camp. Bear the disgrace that I bore. And it's also the opportunity to not only see a bigger picture of God, but to see him show up in a bigger way. And you already heard about one of the opportunities we have here with Fostering Hope. And Hannah and I are praying a lot about how God would have us to be a part of that. We're, we're stuck in, and we've been told by the state to honker down. And Jesus says, no. You have to go outside the camp if you're going to be where I am. That's the only place that I am. And so my prayer is we just see this closing segment by Liz on some of the next steps. God, show us what that means for us. Who do we step out to from the place that we are?